Hi everyone, my name is Steven Wakabayashi and you're listening to Yellow Glitter, Mindfulness Through the Eyes and Soul of a Gay Asian. This episode, we're joined by another awesome queer Asian voice, Amazon Lati. Amazon Lati is an athlete ally and Stonewall Sports Ambassador, former competitive bodybuilder, entertainment executive, and the first Vietnamese internationally published fitness author. Through her personal journey of homelessness, she founded the Amazon Leti Foundation. Amazon has shared her story for It Gets Better campaign and the first White House initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders Asian anti-bullying campaign, Act to Change. She has been recognized by GLAAD and Encapia for her LGBTQ advocacy. She was the first Asian LGBTQ athlete in 2020 to be honored at the Brooklyn Nets' fourth annual Pride Night, and she has been listed in the Australian Pride Power List, Out 100 List, Go Magazine 100 Women We Love List, 2020 Global Changemakers, and acknowledged in the Human Rights Campaign Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month Honors List. Hi, Amazon. So glad to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Stephen. It's such a, a, a pleasure to be on the show with you today. It's quite a bio that you had, and it's just you've accomplished so much in the span of your lifetime so far. And before we get into the podcast, diving into all that you've done, I just wanted to check in with you. Just how are you doing right now, given the current climate, COVID, everything that's happening? You know, I think like everyone, it's been really challenging, COVID and the pandemic, because, you know, how do you prepare for a pandemic? There was no, you know, any 101 yeah. manual that you bought from Barnes and Nobles and no one, you know, <laughs> saw this coming. And, you know, I've been very frank and upfront that, you know, like so many of us, you know, my mental health has been very, you know, up and down. I've had good days. I've had not so good days and it's you know just to know then that's okay because you know many of us you know have felt very isolated from you know so having to social distance um you know not being near friends or relatives or lo loved ones and just the whole change of how it's changed um the the, the world and I, you know, and I, when I think of, you know, how I'm doing, you know, I think of, which I know we'll get into, you know, the LGBT youth homelessness, because I used to be homeless, but to be homeless in a pandemic is, you know, obviously taking it to the next level. But I do what I can for my mental health in terms of making sure that I exercise regularly, staying connected with, you know, friends and loved ones via Zoom, um, making sure that I'm meditating every day and doing a lot of self-care because I think that's so important. And just making sure that I turn off technology mm -hmm. every day because mm -hmm. the news at the moment, if it's not about the administration, it's about how many deaths, it's about the COVID, it's about world crisis. And I think that's just not good consumption for your mind constantly. So, you know, I take a lot of time when I just turn off all technology and just listen to classical music. Yeah, those are amazing recommendations. And I think turning off is so important because what 
what is being blasted on the news is really just to stir up our emotions, you know? They want us to tune in and they want us to feel angry, outraged, sad, anxious. And, uh, you know, at least for myself, I found myself getting stuck on social media. They call this doom scrolling. Have you heard of it before? Where you, oh, yes. Yeah. 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 The, the term doom scrolling, where you scroll through your feed to see pretty much, you know, all these things that are just hurting you emotionally, making you sad, angry, upset, and uh, just how unhealthy this is, you know, and having to step away so that you can make sure you make space for yourself, prioritize yourself, understand your needs. And yes, I, mm-hmm. and I kind of have this saying that, you know, you need to constantly stand guard at the door of your mind mm. because so much is trying to get in. And as yeah. you said, you know, it's not healthy. A lot of it is garbage that just fills your mind and, you know, and that can set off anxiety and panic attacks and feeling, and you know, your mental health going up and down. And I've found particularly during the pandemic. I mean, I was doing it before, but I think particularly so during the pandemic. You know, I try and shut off technology a couple of hours before I sleep and I put on classical music because it just really starts winding down the mind and just calming down the mind. And I'm doing a lot of audio books. I think that's fantastic for your mind, just kind of lying on the sofa with some classical music on the, in the background and just listening to just yeah. like a really nice tranquil audio <laughs> book just to kind of s- set your mood yeah. and, and mind into kind of obviously going to sleep. Yeah, yeah. Any recommendations? Any recommendations of classical music composers and audiobooks that have just uh, um, been really delightful? It, it, in terms of yeah. classical music, I tend to just go on YouTube and just Google meditation classical music. So it's just soft classical music because there's some classical music, obviously, that has lots of drums and um, and it can be very loud and it's like you don't you don't want that in the evening because you want your <laughs> your mind to wind yes, yes. down. I think one of my favorite authors right now is Breenan Brown. You know, I really love her take in terms of you know to be brave, you must be vulnerable. So she just has some fantastic books around vulnerability and rising strong. Um, and, I, and, I, and I also do lots of sleep stories, audio sleep stories that just kind of run for about half hour of, you know, really calming stories, which are really great just to calm the mind. Because there's been there's a lot that's gone on within three months in the yes. world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> unlike any anything ever before you know i also love Brene brown and her books at least you know if if someone is you know if you're listening right now and you have had a chance to dive into her book she has this amazing ted talk on vulnerability that has millions and millions of views uh and uh it's just a really nice way to reframe i think uh uh vulnerability and what it means for us and how we can use it to empower ourselves i think is really her message which is so beautiful okay so let's dive in shall we (laughs) yes let's do it so i was going through your story and 
what really fascinated me was your story about your childhood. First, starting out growing up in Saigon, and just wanted to ask you, what was your story like from Saigon, and where did you grow up next? Um, so, I was left in an orphanage yeah. by my mother, um, and I was adopted by a couple at the time that was li- that were living in Australia. So I spent my formative years in Australia in a time where Asian people were just coming into the country. So I lived, I mean, what I'm seeing now going on across the US with the Trump administration and the amount of kind of anti everyone, unless you're like a white cis man, you know, I went through that in Australia where Asians, where the government said publicly that they did not want to be Asianized and that they were being invaded by the Asian community like we were aliens. So I encountered, I mean, growing up in, up in an all-white background was, had, had its very unique challenges. And I think when you speak to any transracial adoptee, and there are many across the US, you know, you do feel like you're living in limbo because you're being brought up in an all-white background that's not part of your culture. But at the same time, you don't, you feel very displaced within the Asian community as well. So you're in this kind of limbo land where you don't really fit in anywhere. So I encountered a terrible amount of racism as a child, just constantly. I mean, I think I've heard every single Asian slur possible as a kid. And I found that very traumatic because when you're a child, you can't understand why people hate you so much for being you. And on top of that, being very confused about my sexuality and how I felt inside and not seeing an Asian person in media um, and not ever seeing an LGBTQ person. So I never had the word for how I felt. And I felt very alone in my feelings. Like I absolutely believed that I was the only Asian person that felt like this and that I was the only Asian LGBTQ person in the world. (laughs) And, you know, I think many Asian queer people feel like that because we just don't have this kind of representation. So our feelings are very singular and very lonely as well. So it's very hard to know who you can become if you don't see yourself. Um, I was bullied at school a, a lot by school kids. They didn't know that I was part of the LGBTQ community, but they could see something that, that they can tell that I was different in some way inside. So I got a lot of gay slurs as well, even if they didn't know that I was, but they used it. And, you know, it's, it's very hurtful to a child that's part of the LGBTQ community, that the whole, you know, using the gay word against you as as a slur in a very derogatory way. Um, And I didn't really get any support from the teachers either. And I just kind of remember one poignant moment as a child 
when my teacher made me stand up in front of the entire class, and there would have been about 30 or so kids in the class, and said, this is what failure looks like. And I would be the most, and I would be the kid most likely in life to fail. And I just remember just standing there, and all the kids were laughing at me, and just thinking, I can't cry, and I, I would never feel this humiliated ever again. And I never want anyone to feel like I have what I've just gone through. And then she made me sat down, and then I sat down, and then the kids were still laughing at me. And then she threw a blackboard eraser. And the wooden bit, just I just remember it just hitting me at my head and just kind of thinking that I can't understand why the world is so against me. Like people hate Asians at the same time. I'm like the biggest failure in the world. And I, so I never had any role models or any kind of mentor. I had to somehow pull my strength from myself, which was very difficult. And I didn't really have that many friends. So I would literally go to the library and cry, but then spend time in the library reading um, about, you know, different people in life. And, you know, I, I read extensively about Walt Disney and, you know, about Colonel Sanders. And so they became my mentors, people that were quite different and had these amazing dreams and were able to do, you know, the impossible so I kind of lived out my world through this kind of fantasy realm. Um, and I, I went into sports quite early on in life as well. And I think, you know, as a kid, when you're kind of awkward and you don't feel like you fit in, you're always trying to find a sense of community. So I went into team sports as a kid. But I just found that the racism and bullied bullying followed me there because I was then the only Asian kid in sports. And I could see then quite clearly and quite quickly how then the athletic community saw Asian kids. So I got a lot of bullying from my teammates, from other teams, my coach. Um, I loved sprinting and I just, and I wasn't the fastest but I still loved it. And I just remember my coach pulling me aside and saying, you know, Asian kids are geeky, we're slow, you know, we don't have very long limbs. And sprinting, I don't, you know, he said, you know, sprinting's not for you. I think you should try long distance running because that's where Asian kids fit better because we're just slow and geeky. (laughs) So I went to that and I was actually pretty good at it, but I also enjoyed it because it was more of an individual sport whereas sprinting I had to be part of a, a team um but I but I still got bullied a lot and I you know it was just very unusual and I just fell into bodybuilding I had some dumbbells around the house that I just started using because I didn't really feel like the sports that I got team sports wasn't really working for me because I was bullied a lot and I just didn't feel like it gave me the self-worth and the self-confidence that I needed and also the strength to stand up to those that bullied me. So I just started, I was, must have been like six or seven when I started weight training. Wow. And I loved, I loved it. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just loved, you know, 
I remember just standing in my bedroom doing like a hundred sets of dumbbell, hundred repetitions of dumbbell <laughs> curls, and thinking this wow. is the greatest. I did not do that when I was six or seven. <laughs> Let me tell you, <laughs> I was playing with. <laughs> I was a very <laughs> unusual child. <Yeah. laughs> But I just yeah. saw my body physically changing and I felt stronger and my self-worth changed. And, you know, I started going to the gym when I was about eight or so. And then I was suddenly thrust from kids sport to the adult sports. And I mean, I had no idea what I was putting myself in for, what it was going to be like at the gym. I, in my mind, I probably thought there'd be like kids like myself <laughs> at the gym. <laughs> no. And so I got there and found yeah. an all white male dominated adult yeah. sport, yeah. very misogynistic, very sexist, you know, that whole kind of Trump locker room talk. And, you know, I was there invading their space and they didn't know how to handle this Asian female kid, you know, walking in for the first time. And I encountered a terrible amount of misogyny and sexism to my face and behind my back while I was still in their space. And you have to realize that, you know, I'm only like eight at the time. And these men are saying these horrible sexist, misogynistic things to my face. And, you know, I don't know what to say to that, but I knew it sounded wrong. But I loved the sport and what it did for me. And it, it was an individual sport. And I thought, you know, I have to stand my ground because I just have this is something that I love. Um, and, I, and I did. And, you know, I would spend a lot of time in the reception reading the bodybuilding magazines like Flex and Muscle and Fitness. And this, there was just like this one person who kept coming up all the time whenever I read a magazine, which was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I really latched onto him. And I think for me it was more this premise of, Someone who had a funny accent, who had a funny name, came from a strange place and looked very different, but used sports as a platform to get somewhere in life, to make an impact in the world and obviously to have this amazing career that he had. So I spent all my time reading about him and he, you know, he became this mentor to me that I could somehow use bodybuilding and sport as my platform for change and to, you know, see um, the, the world. And then I started competing as a teenager. And that was very strange because I was the only Asian <laughs> teen com 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 competing. And I, I really challenged people's perception of Asian women and I think now still, you know, we still have this perception that Asian women are very passive, we're geisha-like, we're very subservient. So that was challenging for people because here I was being, you know, very strong and mus muscular and yeah. standing up for myself because I had to in the gym, I think, you know, spending all my time when, you know, kids my age were bonding with other girls I was bonding with adult men so I kind of gained these very unique kind of I suppose masculine skills like when I think of myself now you know I'm able to walk into a room full of men and command the stage and know how to present myself because I've been doing it you know since I was a child um, so I competed for a period 
of time. And I think people found me very much of a novelty factor because I was so different, but at the same time kind of didn't know where to place me. Um, and I started to, like Arnold, I kind of read of, you know, how he used sport as a platform to move into the entertainment industry. So I, you know, tried to make that move into the entertainment industry, but I struggled because people just couldn't picture an Asian female bodybuilder in the entertainment industry. And I remember, you know, having an audition with MTV and they literally just laughed in my face and said, this is never going to happen. No one would ever think of hiring an Asian person for a start and then an Asian bodybuilder in the entertainment industry. I mean, I, I never, as I said, I never saw any Asian person on TV. The first Asian person I saw on TV was Dustin Wynn on 21 Jump Street. And when I remember seeing him, it was just like this revelation that, oh my God, Asian people exist on TV. And that creates a possibility that maybe one day I could work in the industry and be seen on TV. Um, and then I qualified as a strength coach and I started training other um, athletes. But I always struggled with my sexuality and just feeling like I was different because there was a terrible amount of hate in Australia. You know, when, when I see what's happening in the US around the persecution of black and brown people and how white America, you know, has this fear of black people, but they don't know where it comes from. This was the kind of fear that white Australia had over Asian people. And they didn't know where it come, came from, but they just were so afraid of us. And, you know, you would hear reports in the paper that, you know, they felt very uncomfortable when they saw Asian kids at the, at the train station because, you know, th their life felt threat threatened. The Vietnamese, you know, we lived in a very bad parts of town and we were just known as thugs and prostitutes. And that's how I saw myself as someone that was bad. I never, I never had a good image of an Asian person. And I just remember as a child just feeling so unhappy with myself and spending so much time washing my arms, thinking that I could wash away the Asian mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and looking in the mirror and not understanding why people hated me so much and why I felt so different in, inside. Um, so I, and I held a lot of that pain in for so many years. And then, you know, when I finally left Australia as a late teen, very young adult um, and I was kind of traveling between Europe and the US I think I just literally it was a it, it was a time ticking bomb inside of me of all the trauma and all the pain that I held inside at one point it, it was going to explode but I didn't know when it was and you know and I didn't really have you know I only met one gay person in Australia who ended up becoming my best friend and we're still friends today but other than that you know, I, I didn't really have too much connection with the LGBTQ community. And I think for many of us, you know, we're particularly from the, particularly in the LGBTQ community, you know, we're a paycheck away from poverty and one personal way of spiraling out of control and just falling into that bad crowd. 
And, and that's what happened. To, to me, I ended up just meeting all these gay people, falling into that bad crowd of drugs and alcohol and partying 24 mm -hmm. hours a day. Yeah. And one thing led to another, and I ended up homeless for a number of, of years, which, you know, became my darkest years. Wow, wow. What a journey. I kind of want to go back a little bit towards your childhood and ask you, as a transracial adoptee, did your adopted parents, did they know how to deal with racism, uh, adopting an Asian child? No. Tra I mean, transracial adoption is so complex. And for, when, whenever a transracial adoptee speaks up about their experiences, they're usually persecuted by the adopter community for not being, for not feeling grateful for the fact that you were rescued, adopted right, yes. and, and, and rescued from your yeah. poor war-torn country because, you know, we rescued you. And if you weren't rescued, you would live like that. So there's a cycle of making you feel, you know, grateful and, you know, make, m making you feel bad and shaming you for speaking your truth. Um, that's why you find not many transracial adoptees do speak up. And when they do, it's always like roses and everything was fantastic. But we know through research that transracial adoptees have a very high percentage of mental health and suicide rate because it is so complex where, because you're basically, you're taking someone from another background and making them assimilate into your background. For the most part, you're erasing their culture and their heritage and everything about them and hoping that they will then be okay in your white background and, and, and world. I mean, now you have these transracial camps in the US and I've been to a few as a, obviously as an adult to share my experience. But still it's very challenging. I mean, it, it is... It is, it is very ch challenging. And I think, you know, when I was adopted, they didn't really know much about transracial adoption. And even now, you know, white parents think they're doing the right thing. But, you know, there's so much research into you had a life between zero and one. Yeah, and yeah. we 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 know that the trauma and the pain that a baby feels when it's taken away from its mother is cellular, and it's something that lives very deep inside a transracial person. So they 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 couldn't see the the racism, and I remember one time when my adopted father took me through the Vietnamese area, and I had my window down because it was summer, and he turned to me and said you should wind up your window because when we get to a traffic light, the Vietnamese people are bad people and they could come in and steal something or grab you. Wow. And I just remember there sitting thinking, oh, I'm Vietnamese. Yeah. And thinking, yeah. what does that mean? To, like yeah. you've said that, and what does that mean about me? And yeah. so they couldn't, yeah, they, I think they couldn't, see the racism i mean it's like what we're going through now with the you know with the black lives matter movement and having these you know uncomfortable conversations with white america that 
when you've lived a life of white privilege and never experienced microaggressions or racisms, it does become very hard to live in our shoes of what that means because as soon as we're born, we are very aware of our presence and we're very aware of the, the, the triggers. And you can see this actually, and I think it's becoming very clear with white America over the mask wearing of why white America is having a meltdown with the mask wearing because they're not, they've never had a trigger before and this is triggering their, their, their privilege that we, we don't have in that way because, you know, we're not, we're not white. So it was, it was very difficult for me to then vocalise the racism that I was going through and for them to understand it. And it was very normalised within the community because you would, you know, it'd be like you walking outside now and seeing horrible Asian slurs on all different buildings everywhere, the train, you know, the train station, and, you know, out, outside department stores, and no one taking it down because it was seen as very normal. I remember, you know, where I lived at the time, I had to walk through a tunnel, and every single day I would see these horrible Asian slurs in the tunnel. And as I turned the tunnel, coming out of the tunnel, kids would hide behind that turn and jump out and attack Asian kids. And it, it always set my heart on fire knowing that I had to take that turn and sometimes kids would jump out and do the whole kind of slitty slanty eyes. And I just remember asking the train master once, why don't you paint over the Asian slurs? Because I find it very, you know, hurtful and disturbing. And the train master just said at me, because the next day it's going to be there again, so we can't be bothered anymore. And it became so normalised. So when it becomes, you know, with what we're seeing now in the US, when racism is, it was always there, but when it becomes normalised from the top, then, you know, people think it's okay to say what they think <laughs> and, and to and, and to do these things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just, I'm just really curious. Was there ever a turning point for you, especially when it relates to your racial identity, your Asian identity, where you went from possibly seeing yourself as white, right, with white parents, a white community, and really loving your Asian identity? Was there a turning point that happened where you maybe saw something in media or something where you're like, actually, this is me. I actually love being Asian. You know, and that's a really interesting question because, yeah. you know, for a lot of transracial adoptees, and it's really strange experience and sometimes, you know, it's hard to, for people who aren't transracial adoptee to get your head around that. Yeah. You're brought up white. I was brought up yeah. a white racist. Yeah. And the people that I surrounded myself with and, you know, the, the white community didn't actually see my Asian-ness. No, they say, but, they say like, you're the different Asian or stuff like that, you know? Yes, they had raised me completely that they, they and, it, and, it is, and it is so strange when I look back at my childhood that it was like I was given this invisible cloak 
where I would, you know, it, it's like walking into the, the room of the Ku Klux Klan as, you know, an Asian or a black person or a Latinx person. And they're still speaking about how they hate Asian people with you in the room, but cannot see that you're Asian mm. because somehow society, yeah, because you've become this special Asian to them, but because you've lived within their community and you've been brought up white, they don't see you. And, it, and it's really bizarre. As, and, and it's kind of like this odd superpower that I have now as an adult where I can walk into these all-white rooms that may be a little uncomfortable, but I can like turn on this superpower where they don't really see me as an Asian person. They see what I was brought up as. But it's also a little strange. You can see in their eyes because they're a little bit confused by that as well <laughs> because they're, they're not quite sure how this person is fitting in so well within their com community. So, you know, I, and I think, you know, as I started getting older, you know, I think between kind of the sort of, you know, 8 to 12 period because it, I started be feeling very confused about my identity that I was brought up white but at the same time people are still seeing this Asian-ness in me and then when I would look in the mirror I couldn't understand why I didn't see a white person but I saw an Asian person and I remember my the in one of the living room, there was this poster with a little Asian girl. And I remember when, as a child, I said, that's me. And my father at the time saying, no, that's another Asian girl. And I was so positive that was me because it was like my only reference to another Asian kid. And I just remember spending so much time just looking at this poster and thinking, that's me and saying it out loud and thinking it's constantly. I didn't meet a Vietnamese person until I was in my late teens. And the Asian kids that I met, they had come from overseas because their parents had been reassigned um, to Australia for work. So they, and they always found me a little bit strange because they couldn't understand I, they could see that I was quite different, but they couldn't put their finger on it. But they they kind of stuck together. So I I didn't really spend too much time within the group of, you know, Japanese kids or Chinese kids, but it's mainly Japanese kids because they would just spend a lot of time um, to, to, together. But I think, you know, as I kind of started heading into my teens, I just had this kind of – I think my biggest thought was – I just wanted to show the world that Asian people are good people, that I, I, I wanted people to understand that we were good people, that we weren't these people that the, the community and that the media were saying, and I think particularly Vietnamese people, because I couldn't think, for, for me it's like we weren't all, I'm, I thought to myself, you know, I'm not a prostitute and I'm not a thug, but that's how the community saw us but it was a you know it was a very long journey and I you know I, I identified as white for a very long time I could not see any kind of connection in being 
Asian. And, you know, I think, you know, by the time I started to become a teenager, um, I, you know, I, I thought a lot about the reference points of, you know, where I could find a, 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 a reference of being a Asian. Um, and I, you know, for me now, I think I've taken a 360 in terms of who I am as an, an Asian person. But, you know, it was, it's a journey. And I think with what I went through, and I think for people who are transracial adoptees, it's a, a long journey of discovering yourself. And that, and part of that journey is going back to your motherland as, as well. Like I, I, and I, and I always had a very negative thought about Vietnam because my family told me that if I went back, the communists would kidnap me and I would never leave a again. So there was always just ne this negativity around being Vietnamese and going to Vietnam. And I just remember the first time as a young adult, I went back and I still remember so clearly in my mind as I could see Saigon in the plane and it just felt like I was coming home. Mm. Like wow. yeah. I, I now know in my mind and my heart that Vietnam is my home, even though obviously I'm very different because I'm you know, an overseas Vietnamese person, but it's the route where I feel connected to. I mean, but even now, I'm, you know, it's, it's still, you know, a, a, a growing and, 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 and still a growing experience for myself because obviously I spend a lot of time in the Asian American community, but I see how different I am because I've lived in different spaces and I've, you know, done very different things. And I obviously the experience of Asian Americans is very different from the experience of my um, experience, but I still feel very obviously con connected yeah. um, there. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the heading home to the motherland is just so powerful. And I think for myself as well, that was a huge turning point for me when I spent considerable time in Asia. Uh, I'm half Taiwanese, half Japanese, and then I went and spent a lot of time there a few years ago, actually. And that was a huge turning point for me as well where I saw a lot of people who look like me. I understood my culture a lot better rather than reading a book about it or um, using media to identify myself, right? It's uh, how do Japanese people act? Let me look at media to try to understand how you know, my uh, heritage and ancestry is. And I think... Um, You know, the beauty and the struggle is, uh, you know, the beauty is having Asians return back home really allows them to unlock and understand this cultural identity within themselves. But the sadness is, especially like you mentioned, for transracial adoptees, not just, you know, in Australia, but all around the world, even, you know, most parts of the United States, right, that aren't metropolitan cities, they never get that experience uh, for most of their life in their teens and maybe even adulthood especially looking at the statistics of how many u.s citizens have passports even you know and so i think the beauty of like social media and even this podcast is really allowing other folks to peer into 
this space that they might not have had an experience in. And so, yeah, what I, you know, what you mentioned just totally resonates with me. And I'm just getting goosebumps right now, just listening to you. <laughs> it's, I, uh, yes, I yeah. mean, for, for me, going back to my motherland, I know who I am yeah. now. But also there's a great deal of sadness inside of me because, you know, when I look at Asian families, I think I've never had that you know, when, and I, th- th- there's a, you know, there's a saying, I think, you know, Breen and Brown said it very well, that when you're grateful for what you have, you realize the loss that I have and the, the, the loss throughout my life that I've had in, in, in terms of just not having that ex- experience of owning my own culture from birth and, and growing up. In, in it and you know that was very difficult when I went back to Vietnam because I realized how much of me is Vietnamese in my DNA and I think you know you can take a person out of their country but you can't take the country out of them um, and I've seen so many things that in other Vietnamese women that are, that I do and I think oh wow it's so entwined within my DNA but I also see how different I am and how different the Vietnamese have seen me because I am an overseas Vietnamese and the struggle with particularly the, the language of not being able to innately speak your mother tongue and how important your identity is. And I think it, that's what it comes down to, particularly when you're Asian and you're LGBTQ, of how important it is for your identity to be recognised and celebrated and loved. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's a great segue to talk about, you know, our LGBTQ identity. And question for you, when was the moment that you realized that you were different, not just in the sense of like a racial identity, because that's so obvious, right? That's our skin. But when did you realize that you identified as a part of the LGBTQ community? I was really young. And it's so true. You know, you're born this way. I must have been, gosh, probably six. I knew I was different at six. And I just couldn't understand what this difference was inside and why I felt different and it was very difficult because on obviously on compounding on top of that there was like the racism and bullying that I had to deal with and constantly not wanting to go to school every single day but then just feeling so different inside and not having a word for this difference and not seeing not not thinking that you know at, at the school as well thinking that there was no one else like me that felt this way either and being very confused by the the, the difference um, and that carried with me for so many years as a, a child and obviously as I grew older you know a lot of the you know the, the, the school kids picked up on the, the difference um, and I think, you know, I think for many, Asian, particularly Asian LGBTQ people, because we just don't hear our stories. 
we don't get the platforms that other communities get. So our pain is so isolating and it feels so singular. And we, you know, for, me, for so long, we don't think that there are other Asian LGBTQ people that feel the way we feel. Yeah. And because there is a lot of homophobia, anti LGBTQ sentiments in Asia too. It's usually the butt of a joke, right? If you have this comedy show, the butt of the joke of the comedic sketch is, you know, what? It's, this person is queer. It's just within the past year, right? Uh, the past year or two, we're starting to see legalization and recognition of same sex marriages, same sex relationships, uh, most recently in Thailand. And it, it has been a long time coming. And I think for Asian, for queer Asians, the difficult part is, um, do I resonate more with this Western culture, right? That has a lot more acceptance of queer identities, but they are racist towards me. Or do I resonate more with this Asian culture, but is more homophobic, more um, anti-LGBTQ, uh, than this Western culture. And I think queer Asians sit in between these spectrums of, well, which of the worst do I want to resonate with? And I think it's, it's very taxing. It's very heavy. And, it, it really is. Yeah. And, you know, we're not invited into many spaces. So we're always on the outer sphere. And when they talk about the LGBTQ community, it's always white and black. And, you know, there aren't, we, we don't have the spaces that other communities have. And if we do, it's always like young Asians, men, and older white men. So, you know, there's, there's that stigma that goes a, along with it. And I found it very challenging as I was, you know, coming into my own and accepting myself because... I, you know, when I first went back to Asia, I realized that I was too open for Asian queer people there because they were all hidden. And then, you know, within the LGBTQ community, there is a tremendous amount of racism that has to be addressed towards Asian LGBTQ community in the way that I think, you know, the way Asian men are desexualized and the way Asian women are over-sexualized, it's, it carries into the LGBTQ community. But actually, it's on a flip because Asian men, Asian gay men are very sexualized with whites LGBTQ and Asian women are very desexualized within the, you know, lesbian, queer, women's yeah, the community, scene. It's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, community is quite the opposite. So we, we don't tend to have a space that we fit in so it's very challenging if you're then an Asian person struggling with your sexuality and gender identity and taking your first steps into the community and realizing this community hasn't created a space for you to be loved and celebrated and you know for a very long time I think why is there a black pride in every part of the world but we don't have an Asian Pride, a place where Asian queer people can, you know, celebrate themselves. And I think, you know, only recently are we still, are we starting to see 
the increase of Asian LGBTQ people in the media that aren't the stereotype Absolutely. of, you know, what we have seen in previous years. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think also for our community, we're starting to see acceptance of LGBTQ identity that isn't binary of being gay or being lesbian. And I think it's another hurdle for our community that is already struggling to accept gay and lesbian identities to starting to, to start acknowledging the fact that there are folks who identify uh, as queer, non-gender binary, bisexual, trans. And I, I am very grateful for the spaces that are being created uh, by folks like you and by other leaders in the space that recognize the need that we do have to have these specialized spaces. And it's not that we're trying to segment ourselves away, but it's understanding that there is a deep, deep trauma that requires sensitivity, that requires a lot of attention, uh, or else what I see from my perspective is a lot of these Asian, queer Asian folks just bottle it up, you know? They either bottle it up for their entire lives, never embracing their true queer identity, or they assimilate, right? They assimilate with white culture so that they can survive. And so I, I think these specialized spaces uh, is really to help unravel them. And uh, as far as the work that I do, I host support groups for queer Asians once a month. And a lot of the conversation is really uh, just on these rudimentary aspects of growth, you know, just being able to come into one's own and how scared they are to even have that space to do so because also layered on top, right? We have this Asian culture that is so, uh, it's so, how do you say? It's, it's like honorable, but not honorable, but it's like so stoic. There we go. So stoic and uh, just being vulnerable. It's just so scary for the Asian, for the queer Asian especially. And yeah, it's the more we can create these spaces, the more we can really open up and move our community forward. Mm. Because, you know, shame and failure, uh, you know, and weakness has always been used in our community. So, you know, as Brennan Brown has said, you know, vulnerability has always been seen with weakness, but it's about being brave. And it took me a long time to realize that to be brave, I had to be vulnerable and I had to peel off my onion skin and show my true self. And, you know, that's what lacks within the LGBTQ community, particularly in the West, is a space where Asian queer people can come together and we can just be. We, we don't have to justify ourselves in the space and we constantly have to do, do that, in, you know, particularly in white spaces and in LGBTQ yeah, yeah. Sp spaces. Absolutely. And I just want to go to this aspect that you had touched that I think is such an important aspect of just the queer conversation overall is this aspect about body and how we see ourselves. And I 
you know, uh, <laughs> a former life that I had was being a part of the circuit community. And that community is just so centered around the Adonis body, you know, queer men gathering together that look a specific way. And when I look just at the gay community as a whole, there is a lot of body shaming, body dysmorphia, uh, queer men who it's not it's not even that they're fat it's just they don't have a ripped six-pack or gigantic pecs and huge arms aren't accepted you know they go on grinder they go on these dating apps and there's so much fat shaming or not even fat normal shaming and it's been a very it's been a very eye-opening uh part of my experience as well coming from being in this community where uh, I, I I thought that this was normal and then stepping away from it, looking from the outside in now, I go, oh, wow, this is very hurtful. This is very damaging to folks. And I was just curious from your perspective, how how do we improve this? How do we help our community accept more than just the beautiful sculpted bodies, but understand that anybody is normal, is, is should be loved. You know, when I think about that, I think about myself and how as a child, I hated myself and I hated my body. I hated being Asian and I hated being part of the LGBTQ community. And I feel that for a lot of LGBTQ people, regardless of race or, you know, or religion or anything, is that society has always made us feel unworthy and unloved and worthless and not enough. And what's the one thing that we can control is our body. Mm. So we're always striving to fit in and try to be perfect. And if I have the six pack, well, I'm still not enough. I need an eight pack. I need a 12 pack to the point where I can't even see what's before me. And it's coming through our own insecurities of, all those years as a child and as a teen uh, with our community and our family and mass media constantly shaming who we are as LGBTQ people and that we're not worthy and we'll never be loved and we will never be enough. And, you know, we need to have more conversations around that as children. I mean, I think what's happened in Scotland, Scotland now has become the first country in the world to now have LGBTQ history in the school mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. Yes. And how yeah. amazing that is that little kids will now have hear positive stories ab- mm-hmm. about LGBTQ mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. in history because yeah. that's where it starts when we're a little kids and we're trying trying to work out these strange feelings that we don't know how to put our finger on of why we feel, you know, like we're in the wrong body because of our gender identity or something to do with our sexuality and at the same time society telling that this is wrong and we will never be loved. And, you know, we have to have LGBTQ education as children. We have to have the power of storytelling 
to make us feel good and how powerful. I mean, when you think about yourself at six, how powerful it would have been if an Asian person at our age came into that classroom and t- shared their story and shared their success and shared how much they embraced and loved who they were and how that would make you feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you feel good about yourself, you also then feel physically good about yourself. You stop worrying that you need this 12-pack to somehow fit in, to somehow feel worthy because you've had these positive images as a child that being LGBTQ is something to be loved and embraced and that you're enough just as you are. I mean, but it's like you are... What do we do with this adult population that's our age <laughs> that didn't get that and that is still going through that? Then we have to create spaces where we can be vulnerable and that's okay. Like the work that you do around having Asian queer support spaces, and I think, you know, we need to have more of those spaces. And I think, you know, we have these very when people say toxic masculinity, I think, no, it's toxic gender norms of what a man should be and what a woman should be. Like men are told from the very moment that they're born that they need to man up, don't cry. Have you know, balls. Showing, yeah. Have mm-hmm. balls, showing mm-hmm. feelings a week. So you've grown up all these years and now you're an adult yeah. and you've suppressed all your emotions, you, you can't even shed a tear without thinking that's some form of weakness. So we have to teach not just you know, LGBTQ history and have storytelling, but we also have to think differently about our education around children, about emotional intelligence and giving children that space to be who they are. Because you look at women of, you know, we, we're allowed because our gender norm is that we're allowed to cry in public. It's okay for girls to cry. It's okay, if, you know, when we have a bad day, we ring up our girlfriend and we all huddle together and have a good cry and then we feel better from it. You know, there's no illusion why that all the mass shootings that you see across the U.S. are all done by men. You know, a, a woman, if she's in that situation in her mind, she will call her friends so you know there's a lot of we have we really have to look at our education system it really comes down to that in terms of you know why there's this generation of lgbtq community the way that they are and i think you know with what's happening in scotland with now that kind of education in the school system if we look 20 years ahead I'm sure those kids will feel very differently about themselves mm-hmm. knowing mm-hmm. that they have had that kind of education as a child compared mm-hmm. to kids that haven't. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I wholeheartedly agree with you bringing or dismantling these gender norms. And when you were talking just about education, I also thought about education of heroes, right? Who we have as heroes and the narrative that we build around them fits so, you know, just are so intertwined with gender norms. You have these men who are these leaders of wars, these leaders of 
masculine movements, right? And then you have the feminine uh, side, which is like Mother Teresa, right? Uh, for example, it's Mother Teresa versus MLK. And I think what we can also do is talk about how MLK, Martin Luther King, also had a feminine energy to him. And what does that look like? And then for Mother Teresa, she did have a masculine energy, how she was very great at business negotiations and very tactical, strategic-minded thinking of how to bring equity into the world, you know. And, but we never, we never yes, hear that. Absolutely. And I, you know, and I think what is really missing within you know, the Asian community, when I think of Asian-American history, we don't even have a museum. If, you know, right now we're lobbying for a national Asian American museum and, you know, we don't learn about our history. And when we look back in history, you know, we had amazing Asian American leaders, men and women who are at the forefront, but we don't learn about it. So there's also that missing link for Asian kids to know our own heroes and to know who came before us because black kids, they see Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. They know they stood on the shoulders of giants. But, you know, for an Asian kid, if you ask them, they would have no clue. And we also have an Asian queer history that needs to be taught. So I think, you know, that's so important because we also led the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. It, it, you know, there's a there's a huge gap in our learning as Asian people that you know even me as an adult I'm just learning about all of this and I'm thinking how that would have helped me as a kid if I knew all these amazing Asian heroes and you're so right in terms of the gender norm because when we think of heroes they're always whites men when you think of Superman he has a six pack he's physically strong he he's physically perfect yeah 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 perfect chiseled face you know it's it's uh, absolutely the more we can dismantle just even our perception of what is a hero you know i think we'll really redefine the way that everybody in the community will start to identify themselves and the one thing that I really absolutely think is so important to call out is this you know, this history that you have with homelessness and why it's so important, especially for the queer community. And I had worked with LGBTQ youth back in, when I was in San Diego, and the amount of youth that were getting thrown out into the streets and people don't realize but san diego is a very republican red area they think it's so you know it's so beachy so you know uh, democratic but that is not the case and these kids 16 17 18 so many 18 year olds were getting put out into the streets to just fend for themselves and they would come into the center looking for uh, community. And it was just so heartbreaking sometimes when they weren't able to get housing. There's this whole application process to even be considered a part of youth housing, and there's not enough spots, and you have to be on a wait list. And if you don't make the wait list, then 
good luck, you know, uh, go fend for yourself until you get off the wait list. And it is just so, especially not even just for gay and lesbian kids, but especially for trans, trans kids. And it's just so, um, it was, it was, it was really, it, it was a huge rude awakening for me and also acknowledging the privilege that I had, um, not having to deal with that and in the work that I do as well, just acknowledging that we do have to make a space for it. And, you know, the question I have for you is, especially as someone who has gone through that experience, what, what message do you have that could be of advice for those who maybe not don't think too much about this uh about homelessness and about homelessness as it pertains to lgbtq youth you know the lgbtq youth sector is only what three to five percent of the entire youth community but 40 to 50 percent of LGBTQ youth are made homeless. And because youth are coming out earlier, they're being made homeless at the age of 10. And absolutely trans youth, you know, are even more vulnerable. And, you know, for the most part, it's invisible. You know, when we see homeless people in the street, it's, it's usually like an old, you know, adult, me- adult men. So LGBTQ youth, we don't you know, we don't see that 15-year-old because they're probably hiding or cl- clustering together because, for them, you know, it's, it's very unsafe when you're living on the streets. And we can end homelessness we, like, like we can end hunger, but we, we aren't. And we have done such a disservice for LGBTQ youth. Because, yes, I realise there are so many, you know, we wanted marriage equality and absolutely we need anti-discrimination laws, but LGBTQ youth, we we need to help them. These, you know, when I think of the work that I'm doing now, I'm not doing it for me, I'm doing it for the next generation. This is not, you know, the seat that I'm in, I'm borrowing it from the next generation. These are the next generation of kids who are, struggling in the street and struggling to survive. I mean, the funding has been cut because, you know, homeless LGBTQ youth is not sexy, is it? In terms of sponsorship, it's not like marriage equality that sounds much more exciting and it's more inclusive of the entire community. This is just one small section of the, the, the community. And it, once again, there is a tremendous amount of white privilege within the LGBTQ community. And many of those LGBTQ kids that are made homeless are not white. So if it's not happening to me, why should I, you know, I, I would look the other, other, other way. And many of the major organizations are run by white men. In yeah. Most, Pri- yeah. most are, yeah. are run by white men in yeah. privilege yeah. who have never experienced, you know, what it's like to be on the margins of society. I mean, when I was homeless, it was my darkest years. And I think now with the pandemic, how challenging it is for us all. But it's like, imagine being homeless and, a pan- and having a pandemic. It's like the worst kind of double whammy ever. And you know, when I was homeless, just constantly suicidal, 
severe mental health, feeling like you're just absolutely nothing in this world and every day is a, a struggle. I mean, I remember just sleeping on days on end because your just body is just so exhausted trying to survive, trying to cope with your mental health. You know, we need many more programs that support LGBTQ youth in terms of obviously through the education system to programs that provide LGBTQ homeless youth with unique skills and fast track to career path development. I mean, what I piloted in Vietnam a couple of years ago was, you know, I wrote a program that I wanted where I could be celebrated, loved, acknowledged, where I could meet leaders of the world and have this fast track at the end to some kind of career path development. So it was a lead, it was the first kind of leadership sports business and education program in Asia that I piloted in my home country country that looked at you know bringing gathering homeless lgbtq youth and providing them very unique skills through leadership sports and business and then having corporate partners and other organizations that would pledge to then provide higher education internship and programs and yes that we we do have some programs like that but not enough um, and i think very differently i think because i've traveled the world and i have obviously i built a phenomenal network from governments down to business leaders. And I found out that, you know, many business leaders, they want to support these youth but don't know how because they, the kids have broken education. You know, a, a lot of states across the U.S. just don't have the funding for this kind of program. So it kind of falls flat. And, you know, for the most part, all the kids are coming from the red states from the south and they head either to the West Coast or the East Coast, thinking that there's something for them there. But when they get there, there's nothing there. And it's so heartbreaking because by that stage, they're trapped and they can't go back. And they're just living day to day. And, you know, there are very few beds. So you're fighting for, you know, a handful of beds. You're suffering from, you know, severe mental health and maybe drug addiction and al alcoholism and other things that you have to deal with and you know for it's it's tough work it's not sexy work e e either and for you know for, and, and so that's why a lot of people don't want to get involved with this kind of programming because it's really lifelong programming but for me I've come through that I know what it's like to be homeless I know what it's like to live on the margins to go through all of that and I know how this kind of program would really help a youth because I think that you know I realize I can't help everyone in the world and it's not about numbers but it's about helping just a few people because it will change their life for, forever and then when you think about the transgender co com community I mean I was the first to give out educational um, scholarships to transgender youth experiencing homelessness in Vietnam and for me it was that it was that easy it's like, you know, you, you have some money and you give it to the college or the, you know, higher education um, co college and they're able to get educated and they're able to, you know, lift themselves out of poverty. And, and you know, we're doing 
And we've, you know, we've chosen a pandemic to roll back trans rights around the, the world, um, you know, and, and I think we're up to now something like 20 deaths of black trans women in the, the US. We've done such a disservice in terms of not supporting the trans community enough and the anti-LGBT laws that have been passed, particularly the one in Idaho that means that trans kids can't even play sports and, you know, what that means to a, a kid where that's what they love and what sports does for an LGBTQ person. Um, you know, there's just so much more work that we need to do. But, you know, governments need to prioritise and, you know, it's unfortunate we, we don't have an administration that prioritises the LGBTQ community like the Obama administration did. But also states, you know, states need to give more funding because for the most part, a lot of LGBTQ shelters struggle with funds and they get to a point where they really, they're, they're really just surviving just with the temporary shelter that they have that there may not be enough programming to provide transitional programming after that. So there's always that kind of falling short between getting into housing and then transitioning out into employment. And companies, they don't have the structure to build programs. They just want to go into an already made yeah. pro pro program. Yeah. For anyone who's listening who may be either homeless, struggling with it, or know people who are struggling with it, what are your recommendations of what they should do, especially for yourself who has been able to get out of it? Try and find a, I mean, support network yeah. is so in, important. You know, if you can get access to someone's phone and if you need someone to speak to, you know, there's the Trevor pro project because sometimes it's just reaching out to a hotline, um, particularly if you're struggling with your mental health or you're, you know, feeling like you just can't go on um, any anymore. Um, I think that is, you know, finding, I mean, it is very difficult because I can say, you know, find a support network, but if you're homeless and you don't have access to a phone, it's like, well, how do I find a support network? And a lot of cities, you know, do have soup kitchens or, you know, places where you can get a free meal, you know, if you have access to the internet, you know, there's a lot of support you can find on the in internet. I think, you know, the internet's your friend. You know, there are so many support groups on the internet, you know, listening to a podcast like yours because just hearing stories of other LGBTQ people, other Asian LGBTQ people who have gone through the same experience as you but come out of it the other side because I think the most important thing is knowing that there's a sense of hope because when you're feeling very hopeless, you want to know that there's some hope and that there's a light at the end of the, the, the tunnel there. Um, I think most cities have some kind of, you know, LGBTQ center or LGBTQ resource. Um, and if not, you know, I would say, you know, call some an organization like the Trevor Project because they would also have a lot of resources that you can have at hand. But I think as well, the most important thing is to know that you are loved 
and to know that you're a part of a larger community that loves and celebrates you and that you're enough and that you've always been enough and that there are people like me who have gone through exactly what you have gone through or going through now and that I'm there fighting on your behalf. I mean, the program that I piloted in Vietnam, I plan to launch in the US next year, first in Atlanta to be able to serve homeless LGBTQ youth in the South, but then I hope to develop a scholarship program that will become national so I can support as many kids as possible across the US and then eventually, you know, an international program. And just to be able to educate the community along the way because there's enough money in the business community and in society and one billionaire alone could help end this crisis that we have. And the question that we have to keep asking ourselves is why not? Why, why would we not? Just, just like helping transgender people, we can create programming that would lift trans women, particularly you know, black trans women who are the most persecuted in the community and suffer the most in terms of the high rate of, of deaths. And, it, and a lot of it comes down to education. I mean, a lot of the work that I do now is about particularly educating business leaders of what it is to be Asian and what it is to be LGBTQ in the workplace and the challenges and barriers that we face because we do face very unique challenges. We're least likely to come forward and we're most likely to hide, uh, you know, who we are for the rest of our lives and we're bullied the most out of all, you know, ethnic groups. So I, you know, I think the power of storytelling is so powerful. So I share my story as much as I can and do as much work as I can with business leaders. And I do a lot of work with governments all around the world of how they can use sport as a platform for equality and how they need to champion LGBTQ equality in their country because how that will lift their people out of poverty in the situations that they have by making a more equal um, society. Because until we share our stories, people don't know the pain that we have inside. Um, and particularly for Asian LGBTQ people, because we hide our pain so well. I mean, it's kind of, you know, I was reading one study in the US that Asian college youth um, have one of the highest rates of contemplating suicide more than any other ethnic racial group or, you know, white stu student. And, you know, we, we are bullied the most and our bullying is so layered, you know, within our multiple identities that intersect to make us whole. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, speaking our truth and telling our stories is just so beneficial for our larger collective community, especially the queer Asian community. And recently, this past Pride season, you had worked with The Advocate, highlighting other Asian LGBTQ voices on the Instagram Live series. And 
I wanted to ask you, what what lessons did you learn for them? Is there any that were your favorites? Any takeaways? Um, you know, for me, I've always wanted to do something like this to be able to give our community a platform because we're usually never given this kind of platform where Asian LGBTQ people can speak to each other and the world can be invited into our conversations and our stories. You know, I learned from Hollywood actor Leonardo Nam, who's a good friend of mine, who's um, he's on the West World, that, you know, he lived in Australia, in Sydney for a, um, as, as well, that we shared the same experience of, you know, the racism and bullying that we received and growing up, you know, feeling different and our sexuality and thinking that we lived in the same city and we both thought that we were the only kids, but realizing that, you know, all these years, <laughs> I know, and all these years later coming together as yeah. friends and sharing that story and how powerful it was, like sharing it to each other and thinking, oh, my God, there was like another Asian person in the same city <laughs> that yeah, lived near yeah. me experiencing the, exactly yeah. the same thing at the time that I was experiencing it. So that yeah. was, you know, amazing. I mean, I loved all the interviews for the conversations that I had for very different, you know, reasons, um, you know, with Leo Shen, with Rain, um, Val Valdez, um, you know, B.D. Wong and Jack Choi because – I had never experienced this growing up, being able to have these discussions with other Asian LGBTQ people and, and realizing that our stories are different, but we share the same similar experience. I mean, I feel that, you know, besides Leonardo, because obviously we grew up in the same country, Jake Choi's story really resonated with me because he came from sports into the entertainment industry and just his story was so powerful. I mean, I remember when he did that speech at the Human Rights Campaign dinner and crying at the end. And it's like, we don't see, as Asian LGBTQ people, we don't see those powerful, vulnerable stories where you, you can feel the pain of that child within the adult. And it's so real that it still brings you to tears because, and I remember swelling up in tears thinking about it. And even now when I think about it, because you think that's my story and that's exactly how I felt growing up. And I'm seeing that for the first time. And we had such an overwhelming response from the Pride series that, we did and we had so many people logging on because you know I think for the most part there were so many Asian people that logged on for the first time and heard their stories and the power of seeing two Asian LGBTQ people sharing their stories and then you know people that weren't part of our community really being able to listen in on what it is to be Asian and LGBTQ and really understanding for the first time the challenges and barriers that we face and the trauma that we have within us and you know what it you know what it is to be part of our community so there was so much power 
in in that and you know i i want to continue these kinds of conversations because i feel that you know there has been a shift obviously with covid you know we had this anti asian racism that spread across the world and we never knew this was going to happen i mean it's been so bad across the us but every country it's been bad but particularly in the us and i think for the first time we we're seen we 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 really felt like as a community that people now see us because there was always anti asian sentiment towards our community but for the first time you saw it on mass and you heard our stories on mass on a global scale we felt brave enough and vulnerable enough to share our stories because we saw other people sharing their stories which meant it was okay for us to finally share our stories so i feel the asian community is having a moment and we've unified in a way like we haven't seen either and i think moving forward and out of you know covid you know we're going to be a different community and i feel that now as a community we want this voice and we want to be seen more than ever in the community and we're not settling for second best anymore and we're not settling for being the butt of jokes that we have been for so long within media and i'm seeing now a you know a shift i mean when i watched the l word and saw leo and i thought wow you know the previous l word there were no asian faces and you know suddenly we're seeing so many more and when i think of people like Chantal Tui on Black Lightning who plays a bisexual superhero who's in an interracial relationship with the main character and I think how powerful that must be for an Asian queer kid seeing that for the first time and thinking that I'm Asian and I'm queer and I'm a superhero mm-hmm. and what that means it's amazing and I'm just so honored that you were able to create that space with the advocate and get this to all of their readers and I have also worked with some of these magazine publications and when you actually what's what's crazy was when I actually did a search on their website just searching the word asian the number of articles that had asians were so few it was just so mind-boggling and i think the more that we can create these spaces not only helps the community the queer asian community or the larger asian community but it helps these magazines too in terms of the content creating a more diverse a more equitable environment and i think the more we can partner with these organizations to create these spaces really is the way forward that we're going to be able to help the next queer asian you know the queer asian child to feel heard feel seen so that when they come of age they're not just dealing with you know figuring out their queer identity but then they take it the next level further even beyond us you know what do they do with it now and that's what's really exciting for me is you know just imagining where is this next generation going to take this movement our stories and how do we you know help elevate and uh grow this collective consciousness i'm 
Amazing. Absolutely. And I, and I think the same as well because, you know, for a very long time within LGBTQ media, there was no Asian re yeah. representation. We just weren't given these platforms. We weren't talked about. We just weren't seen as yeah. relevant. And I've had to work very hard to yeah. create these spaces. And it yeah. surprised myself when I started on this journey to advocacy some years ago, how little we were seen in the press and how I thought how easy it would be to create these platforms and how difficult it was when I started speaking to yeah. the LGBTQ media and yeah. organizations. They just didn't see us as relevant. And I used yeah. to always think it's not like you have hundreds of LGBTQ Asian yeah. people coming to you. It's like one of one. Yeah. If that's, and I think, you know, it's just through this perseverance because I keep thinking about myself yeah. and, you know, this is the reason I do the work yeah. that I do because I remember what it was like for yeah. me as a child when I never saw myself and how mm. it made me feel for so many yeah. years and what when and I have to keep remembering when I share my story yeah. a million times it's not for me it's for that person who hears yeah. it for the first time and yeah. thinks that's my story and that's me yeah. and how that makes them feel for the first time yeah. seeing themselves and knowing that in that moment they're going to be okay Yes, so beautiful. And so that takes us to the end of our podcast episode. It was so amazing just to sit down and talk about your life, your accomplishments, what you're working on. And my next question is just, what's next for you? What are you uh, headed off to do next, work on as a project? Yeah. So... Besides launching this youth project in the U.S. next year, I do a lot of, I mean, obviously because sports um, is my background. So I do a lot of work with governments around using sport as a platform for equality. So we're in a very interesting time. Um, and for a very long time, I've been speaking to people around, you know, the, the lack of Asian representation in professional sports, the fact that we have so few Asian LGBTQ people, you can count them on one hand in the West if that, and in some countries there's you know zero rep representation and what that means in society. Um, but now we're in a very unique time where all the major sports events in the world will be in Asia over the next few years. So all the work that I'm doing um, around sports is leading up to those conversations around Tokyo 2021. Obviously, in 2022, we have the Commonwealth Games, um, the Beijing Olympics, um, Gay Games, and um, World Cup in Qatar. So with the UK governments, I'm leading on sports equality around conversations around Tokyo 2021 and Beijing 2022. And, you know, it's like, you know, what, what are these conversations, um, you know, that, that I can have with different governments around the world and the events that I will have in Asia and in the U.S. and in other parts of 
the world because sport is a slice of life. And, you know, the amount of, I mean, and I always use Jeremy Lin as a perfect example that he, he's, he's such an, he's one of the top basketball players in the, the world, but the amount of racism that he received in the US and how the media spun the, the, the racism. I remember seeing an article, I think it was like the missing chink in the armor and, you know, that they led constantly on his ethnicity and the racism and then what that means to an Asian kid who is thinking of stepping into sports for the first time but sees that and thinks I'm not going to. So for me, these conversations are, you know, and I always think when I have, you know, the work that I do is quite unique because I do so much work with governments all around the world from the UK government to the Argentina government, New Zealand, Australia, Mexican government, you know, most of the major governments and Asian governments, because I think that when you're having decisions, you have to have the decision makers in the room. So I always make sure I have governments in the room, business leaders in the room and community leaders. So I'm now looking at working towards the conversations I can have up to Tokyo 2021. I will go to Tokyo um, in, when it's on as as well because you know it's we're in an important moment in history where all eyes are on Asia and you know it's our time to shine and Asia is shifting in terms of how it's seeing equality but that also means a shift for Asians in the the West because you know to have more out Asian LGBTQ athletes we have to have more Asian LGBT, you know, more Asian athletes. And, you know, we have to create these safe and nurturing environments where Asian kids can thrive through sports and not go through what I feel like, when, you know, when you're just kind of bullied constantly and discriminated and what that means, then how that trickles down into society. Um, so that's, a, you know, a lot of work that I'm doing um, around that. And then I have some more interesting projects that I'll be kind of un unveiling over the next few months <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this year as well. <laughs> yeah. How, how can our listeners find you? How can they best uh, discover you online? So they can go to my website, mm -hmm. amazonletty.com. I am the only Amazon Letty on the internet. <laughs> so it's quite easy to find me. And then all my social media is at Amazon. Letty, so you can find me, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And before we go, any last words? Anything that you want to leave off with? You know, I I hope that by sharing my story, that whoever's listening to this, that they too can be openly out in sports and life and that if you never want to come out, that's okay. But just to be happy within yourself that, you know, and I can never say this enough that, you know, the feelings inside you have, you know, are worthy and that the space that you own is yours to own and that, you know, you're loved and celebrated for who you are by a wider Asian LGBTQ community. 
even though you may not be feel that you're part of it now, know that there are people like myself that love and celebrate and support you and that you're enough and that you've always been enough. And I think for so many Asian LGBTQ people, we've always felt like we were never enough and never worthy of owning the space that we are in. And it takes us so long to get to that point. And I, I remember it, it took so long in myself to realize that, you know, within myself. And, you know, I want people to be able to get to that faster. And I want people to know that, you know, they're enough right away and that it's okay. And to have all these multiple intersecting feelings and identities, that's okay. And that make that, you know, that makes mm-hmm. you whole as, as well. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful message. Thank you so much for this podcast. It was so amazing just to hear your story and your words of wisdom. It's just so nourishing. And I just feel so seen, so heard, and just so grateful that you've taken the time today to show up on this podcast. Oh, thank you, Stephen. It's been such a pleasure to share this space with you and to share my story and to speak to your listeners. And, you know, it's what you're doing is so important because, you know, I never had a podcast like this when I was a child. And I know how meaningful it is, particularly for Asian queer people in, you know, parts of rural America and, you know, around the world who feel like they're the only Asian LGBTQ person in the world and don't feel connected to the community where this is, this becomes a lifeline to the Asian queer community where they can sit in this space and hear their stories and be seen and be validated and know that they're enough and part of a wider community that loves and celebrates just as them as they are. <laughs> Thank you. And for all you listeners, thank you so much for listening and really appreciate you taking the time. No time is very valuable and hope you got a lot out of this episode. And so with that, we wish you well and hope your day can be a little bit more mindful. (laughs) Bye now. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening.